Abraham's nephew Lot has been rescued a second time and finally has the good sense to leave Sodom. But the sordid amorality that infected the city appears to have followed him up to the mountain cave where he camps out with his two daughters. The women effectively rape their drunken sleeping father and the sons that are born from these liaisons become the founders of Moab and Ammon. Meanwhile, Abraham moves his own family south to the Negev, the semi-arid area of modern-day Israel that dips down into the Sinai Peninsula. Unbelievably, he passes Sarah off as his sister again. Why Abraham repeats a trick that got him into such hot water first time around is a mystery. There is no consensus on this among Bible fans. Some say it proves that even heroes are fallible. Others suggest that 20 years have passed since he last pretended Sarah was his sister and the memory of how badly it went has faded. The truth is that anyone who claims they know is probably guessing. The family settles in the region of Gerar and inevitably Gerar's king, Abimelech, falls for Sarah. Again, this seems inconceivable. The woman is now 90 and unless Abimelech is of similar age, it seems unlikely that she would be seen as such a catch at this age. There is not even the excuse of her pale skin colour, as Negev is still considered the Near East rather than Africa. Some have suggested that Sarah might have had her beauty rejuvenated in readiness to conceive a child, but the Bible makes no mention of this, and it remains one of the book's many unexplained mysteries. Abimelech sends for Sarah and appears to add her to his harem. But one night, God warns him in a dream of the kind of trouble that will befall him and his kingdom if he so much as lays a finger on Abraham's wife. The king is horrified. He point-blank denies that he has so much as touched Sarah. Besides, Abraham assured him that they were brother and sister, not a couple. God tells Abimelech that his conscience is only clear because of divine intervention and orders him to give Sarah back. Abraham is a prophet, he says. He will pray for the king and Abimelech will live. However, if he keeps hold of Sarah, he and all his family will die. The following morning, Abimelech meets with his officials and the men are terrified. He brings in Abraham and wants to know why he pulled a stunt that has put the lives of the king and those he loves in peril. The truth is that the old man was worried. Gerar is a godless place where he might have been killed had a more powerful man wanted his wife. Besides, Sarah is technically both his wife and his sister. Passing her off as his relative has simply been a lifelong survival mechanism. Keen to spare himself from God's fury, Abimelech returns Sarah to her husband slash brother, compensates him with livestock and slaves, and tells him that he can live wherever he chooses. He gives Abraham an additional two and a half pounds of silver to show that Sarah has been disgraced without reason and is now exonerated. The couple then say a prayer for Gerar's women, who have remained infertile since Sarah has been living in their country. It is while Sarah and Abraham are living in Gerar that the seemingly impossible happens. Sarah becomes pregnant. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible 
Episode 6, Drama on the Mountain. A couple of notes before we get underway. If you've been on the journey so far, you'll know that this is the Bible minus the preach. You'll also know that I'm neither a priest nor a theologian. I don't run a church. I'm an ad man who loves how the Bible has informed the culture and feel that its content will entertain and inform a vast number of people who might not pick up an actual Bible. Now, some people have commented that I'm being too kind to creationists. They say that in trying to locate places and rationalise events which many see as fictional, I'm giving credence to the more traditional view of humanity's origin story. I have to tread carefully here. A huge number of believers really do see the Bible as their science and history book, and the arguments and rationales they put in place to back up this worldview are fascinating in their own right. As for the Bible references in this podcast, they're taken from the New International Version UK edition of the Bible, which is pretty much the same as the original US version, except we spell colour with an O-U-R and say grill instead of broil. Genesis credits Sarah's miraculous geriatric pregnancy to God's grace. When her baby son is born, the couple name him Isaac. Abraham is now 100 years old, and after eight days, he takes his tiny child and circumcises him, honouring the rule put in place by God years earlier. There is no clear explanation why baby Jewish boys should be circumcised on the eighth day. Some believe that it is so they experience a Sabbath. Others hold that it has some connection with baby animals needing to be at least eight days old before they're sacrificed. The medieval rabbi Maimonides believed that it is a simple case of the child being strong enough at eight days to withstand the surgery. The name Isaac means laughter, and Sarah tells people how she can see the funny side of this. God has brought her laughter, she says, and anyone who hears that she has had a baby at 90 will laugh too. No one could have possibly imagined that she and Abraham would have children, she marvels. Yet here she is, providing her husband with a son and heir in his old age. The pregnancy is seen as a miracle, one which has inspired countless believers over the millennia. The message which it sends to Jews, Christians and Muslims is that no lost cause is completely lost if God decides to turn it around. Isaac is a healthy baby, and on the day that he finally moves on to solid food, Abraham celebrates with a great feast. By now, Ishmael is 13, and whether he resents his little brother or is simply being a teenager, he makes fun of Isaac at the meal. Sarah interprets his teasing as a step too far. Motherly rage overcomes her, and she orders Abraham to get Hagar and Ishmael out of their home once and for all. She refers to Ishmael as that woman's son, and vows that he will never share in any of the inheritance promised to Isaac. Abraham is compromised. Ishmael is still his son, and naturally he finds the matter hugely distressing. According to Genesis, God advises him to go along with whatever Sarah wants, as Isaac is the future hope for the family. He also reassures him that things will turn out well for Ishmael. He is Abraham's son and will spawn a nation of his own. 
Early the next day, Abraham straps food and water to Hagar and sends her and Ishmael away. The Negev is not the most hospitable country and the two of them wander through the desert without much of a plan. Eventually, all the food and water run out and with no other means of survival, Hagar lays Ishmael under a bush to die. She then wanders off a short distance as she cannot bear to watch. But all is not lost. A voice which the book describes as coming from an angel of God tells Hagar that God has heard her son sobbing and that she shouldn't be afraid. She should pick Ishmael up again, the angel says, as God has plans to turn him into a great nation. The angel then shows Hagar a well and she's able to fill her animal skin with water and give Ishmael something to drink. The writer describes how God stays with the boy as he grows up and that Ishmael remains in the desert where he becomes a skilled hunter. His mother finds him a wife from Egypt, which is no surprise as she's from here herself and the desert where they are living is close to the Egyptian border. Meanwhile, Abraham is still living in Gerar and Abimelech is clearly concerned that he has a powerful immigrant family squatting on his land. To reassure his worried neighbour, Abraham makes a treaty, promising not to attack him or any of his descendants. While peace talks are in progress, Abraham complains about a well which the king's men appear to have blocked up. After all, harmonious living needs a little give and take on both sides. Abimelech has no idea the well was blocked, and to show there are no hard feelings, Abraham hands over some livestock to the king. The men call the place Beersheba, which is Hebrew for the well of the oath. There are no temples or tabernacles in Abraham's day, and so the old man decides to put in place a very basic one of his own. He plants a tamarisk tree, which serves as a kind of proto-temple where he prays to God. Abraham refers to God as El Shaddai. It seems only right that a being as all-powerful as God should have multiple names. Others are Yahweh, Jehovah and Adonai. The El of El Shaddai means God, and Shaddai has several meanings, among which are destroyer, mountains, and fertility. El gives its name to Elohim, an Old Testament word meaning God of Gods, and is present in many Hebrew names, most notably Israel, triumphant with God, Emmanuel, God with us, and Samuel, name of God. The most common translation for El Shaddai in the Bible is Almighty God, setting the Creator in a different league to all the other gods who are feeble in comparison. Abraham, his son Isaac and grandson Jacob all know God as El Shaddai. However, the name doesn't really make it beyond these early days of Jewish history, and the last Bible hero to regularly use El Shaddai is Job. Fans of 80s gospel will know that US artist Amy Grant scored an international hit with her song El Shaddai in 1982. His tree planted, and now confident that he can continue to live in peace with his neighbours, Abraham and his family remain in the northern Negev for a long time. Finally, he has a son whose offspring will populate the earth with followers of God. But in one of the Bible's most dramatic plot twists, it seems that God has changed his mind and now has no need for Isaac. He tells his most loyal follower that he is to take his son up a mountain with some firewood and kill him. 
Faced with the unthinkable, Abraham gathers his things and sets off on the most difficult and painful journey of his life. God's instructions to Abraham make for one of the most epic stories in the Bible. What he believes he has been told to do is so awful that it must seem beyond Abraham's imagination. It's made worse by the fact that he had to wait until he was 100 years old before he and Sarah were able to have their child. Still, he hitches up his donkeys and travels for three days with Isaac and his servants until they reach Mount Moriah. Here, he tells his men to wait with the animals while he and Isaac go off to make their sacrifice. At no point does he let on that his son will be the one killed and offered up to God on the mountain. Isaac certainly has no idea of what is going on. His father straps the wood to him while he carries the fire and the knife himself. But something is clearly missing. They have no lamb to kill for the sacrifice. Isaac wants to know why. Keen not to worry his son or say anything that might get in the way of God's plan, Abraham tells him that God will provide the animal when they get there. After the two of them arrive at the place that God has designated, Abraham sets about building an altar and arranging sticks on it to make the fire. He then ties Isaac up and lays him on the wood. There is no indication in the Bible of how old Isaac is at the time these events play out. He's only referred to as Abraham's son, not a child, and some Jewish sources suggest that he might be as old as 37. However, it's unlikely that a grown man could be so easily overpowered by another man approaching 140 years old. Plus, if Isaac goes willingly to the slaughter, the story becomes more about his own mental preparedness than his father's sacrifice. For the story to have power, Isaac needs to be a child, and this is how most Jews, Muslims and Christians interpret it. The story of Abraham and Isaac remains of immense importance to followers of these religions. Christians in particular see a parallel in the New Testament where a father, God, willingly sacrifices his only son, Jesus. Given Abraham's great age, even a relatively young child might easily wriggle free from his grasp. Add to this the mental distress and it is easy to see why Abraham attempting to sacrifice his own son remains one of the Bible's most enduring stories. Alone with his son, a knife gripped in his hand, Abraham raises his arm to strike the fatal blow. With his hand raised to strike Isaac with the knife, Abraham hears someone calling his name. The Bible describes the voice as belonging to the angel of the Lord, a kind of audio manifestation of God, and it orders him not to lay a hand on the boy. God seems pleased that Abraham is willing to carry out his orders to such a degree. His loyalty is so strong that he is even prepared to give up his longed-for child just to please him. The Bible doesn't record Abraham's relief, but he certainly feels the need to honour God in some way. Grabbing a ram that has got stuck in a nearby bush, he sacrifices the animal instead of his son. Abraham names the mountain summit Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. 
He has been tested and has passed emphatically, and faith like this comes with a reward. The angel tells Abraham that his offspring really will be as numerous as grains of sand on the beach and stars in the night sky. They will seize their enemy cities and all nations will be touched in a positive way because of his actions here on the mountain. After the adventure, Abraham and Isaac return to Beersheba, where normality resumes until Isaac becomes old enough to marry. News travels slowly in Old Testament times, especially when it has long distances to cross. Somehow, Abraham learns that a brother back in Mesopotamia is a father too. The old man sees an opportunity. If his brother has daughters and granddaughters, one of these might be a suitable wife for his son. So far, the people who will one day be known as the Israelites number just three, Abraham, Sarah and Isaac. They're a long way from the grains of sand on the shore and the stars in the sky, and so a loyal servant of Abraham saddles his camels and heads back to the family's ancestral heartland to find Isaac a wife. The pressure is very much on, as the future of millions depend on the success of his mission. Little does he know that the woman who he finds to be Isaac's wife will help her favorite son plot, scheme, and cheat his way to supremacy that the boy will fall out catastrophically with his brother as a result and, fearful of revenge, flee for his life into the desert. Dysfunctional doesn't even begin to describe this family. Their story is next. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chaz Bayfield, with music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Please send any comments and feedback to contact at holybible.com. <laughs>